Do economists know what makes people happy, actually? Economists tend to view people as happiness machines. And uh, there's a part of us that that's an apt description, but it's a small part. It's not the central part. And I think economists actually, through training and teaching and their research, actually start to believe that their model of human behavior is actually how humans behave. That's not supposed to be the case. Uh, it's supposed to be the case that a model helps you simplify something complicated. But after a while, you start forgetting that, I think. And if you're not careful, you start to think it's the same. So economists treat human beings as people trying to be as happy as possible. And that's a huge part of our life, of course, that we want to be happy. We want to have a good time. We don't pick the, the movie to go to on Saturday night that makes us least happy, although I did watch The Banshees of Inna Sharon, and it's a deeply disturbing movie, and I'm glad I saw it. Uh, and, and the economist said, oh, that's because you got pleasure from being depressed or being th thought-provoked or whatever. So economists can always explain things, but I think the, the parts of life I've gotten more interested in as I get older are our desire to belong, our yearning to be respected, our yearning to matter. The goal of this podcast is to explore the values and purpose driving organizations, the impact technology can have on humanity, and the humanity behind digitization. I'm Michael Eisenberg, husband, father, and grandfather, author, and venture capitalist at Aleph, based in Tel Aviv. Join me on this journey. Uh, I'm Russ Roberts, and my core value is, well, I like, I like to think it's truth, but I'm, I probably fall short there, but I like to think that's my core value. I can attest to that. But as an economist, we'll come back to that soon. I think that's a <laughs> tough one. Yeah. yeah. I'm so happy to welcome Russ Roberts to Invested, the first trained academic on the show. Russ is the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem and the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Roberts hosts the weekly podcast Econ Talk, which he started in 2006. Boy, was he ahead of his time. An hour-long conversation with really interesting thinkers. He's hosted over 875 episodes with guests, including Mark Andreessen, Milton Friedman, Angela Duckworth, and Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and at least 874 of them were interesting. The one with me, less so. His two rap videos on the ideas of John Maynard Keynes and F.A. Hayek Created with filmmaker John Popola, have more than 13 million views on YouTube, have been subtitled in 11 languages, and are used in high school and college classrooms around the world. His latest book is Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions That Define Us, and a book I highly recommend. The book looks at the challenge of making big life decisions, whether to marry, whether to have children, what career path to follow when there is little analytical evidence to help us. And this is particularly pertinent in our data-driven world that we live in right now. Past books of Russ include Gambling with Other People's Money, How Perverse Incentives Caused the Financial Crisis, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness, and Three Economic Novels Teaching Economic Lessons and Ideas Through Fiction. Russ, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show with us. Let's get started. Great. Great to be here. Okay, so you and I have met for coffee a few times. Uh, I come out of every meeting with you edified, but you accomplish a lot and have very little time. But when I listen to you on podcasts, you say you create free time and free space with which to think. How do you do that and compress it all into this very busy life of yours? I think we have an obsession with productivity, uh, often in the modern era. Um, people are looking for life hacks, how they can multitask. 
I think it's often a mistake. It, it leads to a sense of franticness uh, that's bad for thought. And it's something we use to create prestige for ourselves. I'm busier than you are. Oh, I, I, yeah, I can't talk too long right now. I got too much to do. How about you? You busy? And I, I, I think that's a very common um, illness of our modern age. And thinking's really important, whether it's in the shower, whether it's walking around town. Um, I walk to work occasionally. I have about a 35-minute walk to work. Sometimes I listen to podcasts or other audio material, but sometimes I just let my mind go. And I think that's very powerful, very helpful. You know, when you say that, what comes to mind is distinct, this distinction between urgent and important. Yeah. It feels like, particularly in the world of social media, there's a lot more focus on urgent because, for example, you may lose the narrative or I got, I got to respond Yeah. rather than important. How do you train people to think about what's important versus what's urgent? And actually, are there things that are in dialogue that are actually urgent? Well, my personal practice is to do the things I love. It's not good advice. I don't necessarily recommend that to other people, but I try to find things that make my heart sing and spend my passion on those things and get involved in those, immersed in them. I think as human beings, urgent is our natural response. Uh, we're scared. We're worried about the future. Uh, the future is always uncertain. We're the only animal that I think has anxiety about the future. So the urgent is one way we cope with that. And I think that comes at the expense of the important. There are many different ways to become more focused on the important. Um, you can take a time management class. You can go to therapy. You can meditate. You can have a religious practice. All these things, I think, are ways to transcend ourselves. Ourselves are very focused on the rat race, get things done, hurry, hurry, hurry. And um, a lot of the best moments in life are when we slow down. So I have this um, pet peeve. Uh, where I guess I don't believe in work-life balance. And I gave this talk at Georgetown that afterwards seemed to pick up some steam where I told these students that this promise that many of their professors made to them about work-life balance and their parents maybe and their therapist is false. What do you think about work-life balance? Well, I think it, I, I don't know what, what exactly the nature of your pet peeve is. I, I keep Shabbat. I do think thoughts on Shabbat that are not related to the divine and to the holiday. <laughs> you, mean, you mean you're human? Like yeah, the rest exactly. Of us, yeah. Uh, but I, I try to focus on other things on Shabbat, and I don't use it on my devices. And I think that's a very healthy thing. So I don't, I don't think it's irrelevant. Um, again, I think there's a temptation in, in modern times to be available twenty four seven as opposed to twenty four six. I think we. I'll speak for myself. I think it's very hard to realize how degrading uh, some of our cultural practices are. One of those is our phones. I'm on my phone way too much. Uh, I wish I were on it less. You know, it tells me sometimes, I don't know, is it the end of the day or the end of the week? You were on, you had 4.7 hours of screen time this week. And I'm thinking, and it's it's down 12%. I'm thinking, yeah, that's because I was on my computer more. Uh, <laughs> but the, I, I really think that the key, the single most important aspect of work-life balance is having a human conversation like the one we're having now. Now, we could have, we could imagine a world, and it's not very far away, where AI would answer these questions for you. You'd ask these questions of the Russ Roberts chatbot, and it would be pretty good. And maybe I'd edit them. Maybe, you know, maybe it wouldn't be perfect to make mistakes in, in the early versions. And I'd say, you know, this is, 
it's pretty good. You've got your content now. Publish it. You can even get an avatar to look a little younger than I am, a little, a little better, a little less uh, whatever. And uh, it will be entertaining for your listeners. But this, sitting across from another human being, looking in the eyes and knowing that you're not a chatbot, you're not an avatar, you're not a 3D hologram, you're a human being and there's blood coursing through you and you have a heart that's pumping away and you have kidneys and all that other stuff that goes with it and you've got some kind of ability, if you're lucky, to react to another human being. That can, is what I think is a huge part of life. And that part needs – I want to preserve that in my life and it's hard, right? It's hard with my wife. My wife – you know, my phone's notifications are going off and oh, I got I to respond to that right now. And our, so many of our conversations are erratic for that reason. One of the advantages of what we're doing right now is that we're going to talk for an hour or more as two human beings across from one another about things we care about. And that's incredibly special. So I don't know what your pet peeve is exactly, but mine is we don't do enough of this. I know it's hard for me to do enough of it, and I want to make more room for it in my life. My pet peeve is that life is always out of balance which is when you seek balance, you just become frustrated. And things are always out of balance. You know, sometimes you need to cut off for Shabbat. Yeah. There's no balance there. That's yeah. <laughs> cut off. Yeah. And, you know, we need to have this conversation now. There's, not, there's no balance in this conversation. We've prioritized it. Yeah. And that the notion of balance, and I think in general, we, we try to balance society, make it balanced and equal, is just a false pursuit because real human beings are always out of balance. Computers can be in balance, but people are never in balance and therefore society is never in balance and time is never in balance because, you know, if God forbid, you know, family member passes away, I have real human feelings of bereavement. I take time out to grieve and for Shiva, there's no balance there. Yeah, that's a good point. And, um, and so we're actually always in some level of extremis um, we've just prioritized. I tell my children all the time, there can only be one thing at the top of your priority list at any given time. There can't be two, actually. That's kind of my pet peeve. Yeah, I like that. Funny question is based on what you said. When the phone rings in your house, is it always answered? No, of course not. No, and... and God bless you. You know, I, I mean, I think... When did I get a call recently? By the way, I have like 700 unanswered yeah. WhatsApp chats <laughs> on my phone. My kids make fun of me about it. I, I don't care. We spent the night last night here in, in Tel Aviv. And uh, I had a couple of things to do today. This is one of them. And in our hotel, there is a telephone in the bathroom. It used to be a common thing in a nice hotel. There'd be a telephone. Now, start thinking about that. Talk about balance. And it's totally out of date. There is zero reason to have a corded telephone in the bathroom. It's like it should have a dial. It should have a thing for your <laughs> finger to put in it. Um, just make sure you don't drop your device in the toilet. I exactly. Think, right? yeah. well, that's what's good about it. But, but I think my generation, the idea of not answering the phone is, is weird. But for I think for young people, they, they, don't, they don't make phone calls. In fact, the whole idea of calling somebody and expecting them to pick it up would be weird. Um, my mom calls me sometimes, and I try to answer it every time. One, because it's my mom, and two, because I know she thinks that I would answer if I could. And she doesn't understand that in the modern world, that's against the rules. But, so I just <laughs> cut her some slack. Mom. <laughs> yeah, what can you do? But anyway, uh, no, we don't. We try not to answer the phone during meals. So but we don't get many calls. You <laughs> don't great. get many calls. <laughs> God bless you. So five years ago, you wrote a compelling list called Your Own 12 Rules for Life, roughly modeled on Jordan Peterson's 
a book with that name, a book which I read. Um, here's your 12 rules. Learn to enjoy saying, I don't know. Find something healthy to worship. Make Shabbat. Eat dinner with your family as often as possible and always without devices. Read, read, read. Tithe wisely to help create community and care for others. Don't take the job that pays the most money. Give up a lot to be at a funeral. That's from Ecclesiastes. Uh, it says better to go to the house of the mourners rather than to the party house. Hmm. Number nine, if your child offers you a hand to hold, take it. Number 10, know yourself. Number 11, hold your anger for the day. Number 12, be kind. Everyone is in a battle. Which is the hardest of these to practice? Let me see that list again. <laughs> I got I to cheat. I'd say two things. When I was younger, it was saying, I don't know. I may give this back to you in a minute, so don't worry. But I want to keep it. I memorized it. Um, it took me a long time. Right? I'm an academic. We are rewarded and lauded and celebrated for our achievements intellectually. Say, so I don't know, is like a failure. Once you get to the point where you can say it without shame, it's exhilarating. It, it is a game changer because it, it, it takes people aback. What do you mean? You know, you're a trained economist, say, depending on the question. Somebody once asked me, how many jobs were, were, were lost by NAFTA? I said, I don't know. He goes, well, what do you mean you don't know? I said, well, there were a lot of jobs that were created because people had more money to spend. They were able to import things. I'm talking about the North American Free Trade Agreement between the U.S., Canada, Mexico. I said a lot of people had more money to spend because they had more imports that pushed prices down. So they had more money to spend, and that probably expanded some sectors of the economy we can't necessarily see. It's tied to this, but it probably led to more employment there. And, and there were other things, jobs that were lost, where factories went, say, to, to Mexico, but it's really hard to know for sure how many. And he got really mad. This is a journalist. He got really mad at me. He said, you're a trained economist. How, how can you say you don't know? I said, because I don't know. And people who tell you that, that they do know are liars or charlatans. They're, they're, they're scam. It's a scam. He was very upset about that. Um, that I actually have a recent story that's very similar to that, which is um, I got a call from a journalist who said to me, everyone's laying off people in the Israeli tech economy because, you know, there's a big downturn going on. And how many layoffs are there? I said, I, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I said, you know, there might, I might be able to know the proximate answer to that question in my own portfolio. And uh, I went and did the work. And we had layoffs like everybody in the portfolio, but we had net job ads in 2022 of uh, 1,600 people. So I called him back. I said, it was, I think, 1,622. And like I said, we, we had over 1,600 jobs in the portfolio on a, on, a, on a net basis. Can't be. Everyone's reporting layoffs. I said, uh, I don't know. I went and checked the numbers. But he <laughs> said, what about the general economy? So I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> but I decided to pick up the phone and I called the finance ministry. And I said, you all must know. How many, this is in Israel, you can call the finance yeah, I was going to say, right? we live in Israel, don't right. we? Yeah, in America, say, I like to, like to call the treasury. What? But it, so I called up and I said, how many people in the cluster you call high tech are employed today versus how many were employed 12 months ago? They said, the same number. And I said, what about the layoffs? They said, well, we see people are getting recycled, meaning people are getting laid off here and hired there and new people are coming to this system. But the absolute number is basically hmm. the same. I just kind of discovered that most people think they know these answers and, you know, our intuitive senses throws us off. But I don't know is actually a powerful way actually to actually go learn something. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I love saying it. So now, what's the second one that's hard? So the second one that's hard is know yourself. Um, I'm 68. 
I've known myself for 68 years, not fully in the early years very well, obviously, but more and more as you get older. And it still shocks me how hard it is to know what, who you really are, what you have trouble dealing with, what makes you feel shame um, when you're too prideful, um, what pushes your buttons. I mean, come on, I'm 68. Haven't I figured it out yet? And, you know, I like to say growing up is learning how to transcend yourself. And uh, it's, it's a long process. It takes a long time. I think people, when they hear that we're talking an investor and an economist, and they read this list of 12 things, they said, where's the economist? Yeah, where <laughs> Where'd he go? <laughs> what about being a world-famous economist turns up in this list? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> because economics isn't important? I think economics is important. And what I've learned from economics is important. But as I get older, I find that the things that I know from economics that apply in my personal life are smaller, not bigger. There's some that still matter. There are things I see around me. There's ways I interact with people that economics helps me understand. Certainly in public policy, economics is very important. Uh, but I think about my uh, – I don't – economists tend to view people as – Happiness machines, and uh, there's a part of us that that's an apt description, but it's a small part. It's not the central part. Um, and I think economists actually, through training and teaching and their research, actually start to believe that their model of human behavior is actually how humans behave. That's not supposed to be the case. Uh, it's supposed to be the case that a model helps you simplify something complicated. But after a while, you start forgetting that, I think. And if you're not careful, you start to think it's the same. So economists um, treat human beings as people trying to be as happy as possible. And there's a huge part of life, of course, that we want to be happy. We want to have a good time. We don't pick the thing to the movie to go to on Saturday night that makes us least happy, although I, I did watch The Banshees of Inna Sharon, and it's a deeply disturbing movie, and I'm glad I saw it. Uh, and, and the economist said, oh, that's because you got pleasure from being depressed or being th thought-provoked or whatever. So economists can always explain things, but I think the, the parts of life I've gotten more interested in as I get older are our desire to belong, our yearning to be respected, our yearning to matter, uh, things that Adam Smith identified in his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, that you know I learned a lot from. Um, did you read Sebastian Younger's book, uh, Tribe? I did. It's a fabulous book, fabulous which book. is another example of, of just the power of um, that primal impulse to belong. I, I, in, in the book I wrote in Hebrew and Leviticus, one of the things I suggested there is that the, the biblical economy is an economy of brotherhood and belonging. That's kind of the nature of it. And so the incentive system is structured as such uh, to, to bring out not tribalism, but actually respectfulism. Mm-hmm. And um, I like to think about in the context of what you said a second ago about economists, what makes people happy. Do economists know what makes people happy, actually? No, they don't pretend to either. They're very agnostic. Oh, I guess they're not very agnostic. They're agnostic. I don't think you'd be very agnostic. They don't pretend to know. They say, you know, Degustibus uh, non disputandum, which is Latin for there's no disputing taste. I don't know what makes you happy. I don't know what makes her happy. I don't know what makes him happy, but... 
whatever it is, you will try to achieve that in as an effective way as possible, given that you don't have an infinite amount of, of money and time. That's really the economist worldview. It's not a it's a great starting place. It, it basically recognizes that our incomes are finite, our lives are finite, and they're precious, and we should use them those resources carefully. And that part's wonderful. The hard part is what about the things that are harder to quantify? Dignity, pride, sense of meaning, purpose, uh, belonging to it, whether it's a tribe, a community, a nation. These are things that in the last five years, eight years around the world have become central. Things like fiscal policy, not so central. Now, you ignore fiscal policy, you ignore it at your peril. It will bite you, and you will regret it deeply. We're feeling those bites. Yeah, we're starting to, and we'll see. But I think for a long time we ignored that other part of the human experience. It's not all about the material well-being that we that we strive for. We do care about it, but it's not always central. And I think um, economists don't have much to say about that other part. Yeah, interesting. You should say that. So during COVID, I had an ongoing uh, argument uh, with economists and. Uh, uh, president of one university who turns out a lot of economists uh, that work in the finance and treasury ministry here, um, in which I said to him, the model broke. I mean, you had a model. It broke, but people are behaving very, very differently during these COVID times. And therefore, I think you need people of real world experience rather than academic experience, kind of trying to model what's going on uh, today. And I think it's leading to bad policy decisions. Uh, he did not like that sure. comment to say it uh, the least. How do you think about that? Like, where do you need in policy economists versus people who are, for argument's sake, invested in or with skin in the game to, I know you've interviewed Nassim Taleb, to kind of get at these problems and make better decisions? Well, I think economists have a lot to add to the conversation. I just don't think they're good at either giving a definitive answer because we don't, it's not what we're made to do. We're not made to say, what should be our policy in the face of, let's say, technology eliminating jobs? Like, that's a concern. Uh, it's been a concern f forever. It's turned out pretty well overall for human beings. Uh, any one human being can, can pay a, a tough price when, when if technology takes away your job. Uh, so what economists can tell you, they can tell you something about the trade-off. You know, when, um, when driverless cars and trucks were three years away. Remember that? About I, I mean, I remember people saying that. And unfortunately, I've been in the camp that says it's 25 years away for forever. So Yeah. So so for a while, there was this feeling that it was imminent. Yeah. And, and what- In the newspapers, it was imminent because, imminent. excuse me, a few economists and some technologists who were way out there said it was imminent. And that's a good meme. Yeah. And it draws clicks and yeah. I got it. So, but I actually was thinking it might be true. I have a lot of faith in human creativity. Uh, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley when I've been out at, at Stanford, and there are a lot of really smart people there. And they make a lot of progress on a lot of things very quickly. So the trend was looking good. And the question was then raised, there's X million cab drivers, there's X million truck drivers. If they get put out of work by this technology, what are they going to do? That's a really good question. Now, we faced it many different ways, in various forms. This particular question, I think, is, is, was particularly relevant because it wasn't obvious that they had a lot of other, lot of other transferable skills. Mm -hmm. Driving does not help you that much 
in other fields than driving. So it was a really serious question. Now, an economist can't tell you what to do about that, right? Should we, should we stop that technology from being developed? Should we ban that technology in our country? Here in Israel, they banned Uber, um, which I thought was a mistake, but, uh, but they did, partly to preserve the jobs of the people who drive cabs. Uh, we make it hard for people to import cheese. That's to <laughs> protect the livelihood of people who are farmers. And whether that's a good idea or not is not a question for an economist to answer. What an economist is good at telling you is here are the likely impacts of this policy or that policy. And then we have to decide what our values are and, and whether we like that or not. But economists tend to become a little more confident than that. And that I think is, is a little bit scary. We're not good at answering that question, should we? They're really good at answering. We're really good at, at making the point there are no solutions, only trade-offs. But come on, that guy's annoying. The guy who says, wait, you don't have a solution? You know, it's like the I don't know question. You know, someone would say to me, uh, I noticed the dollar went down today. The financial reporter calls me. Dollar went down today. Why? I have no idea. Well, what are you good for? Well, not not for your nothing for your story. I am not good for anything. Call someone else who will give you a story that is totally not true. <laughs> but enjoy yourself. It'll make good copy because uh, no one knows exactly because there's about a thousand things happening today. Uh, we don't know which one. I'll pick one if you want. I'll tell you a story. I, I, I got maybe ten. I can tell a reasonable story. So, um, economists, if you want to be important, you have to have answers. And and nobody wants an economist who who doesn't have an answer. So I think that's the, the seductive aspect of our field that's, I think, dangerous. I read your book, Wild Problems, which I loved. Thank you. And I suggested to my children to read it too. I'm curious about the title because I walked away from the book saying it should be called not Wild Problems, but Real Human Problems. <laughs> and um, why'd you call it Wild Problems? I don't remember. Uh, th there is a, a term in the literature of decision-making and... Uh -huh. wisdom called wicked problems. Right. That. And and wicked problems, as I understand it, I don't remember so well now, but when I was writing that book, wicked problems are problems that are complex, that have lots of moving parts where there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences, along the lines of what we're just talking about, that a lot of times you go to fix something and you think you've solved it, but actually you've caused a different problem over here. And, and to realize that's a hugely important thing, by the way. It's um, not unimportant. It is hugely important to be aware of the complexity of the world. Um, I thought that was a strange nomenclature, wicked. Uh, wicked to me has a moral <laughs> interesting, a moral component. And I grew up in Boston and wicked there means really, you know, it's wicked good. And so I always thought somebody called that wicked problems because they're really, really problems, you know. And so I thought that's not a very good nomenclature. I'm going to pick a different term for a problem that's not easily solved. And I love that um, wild versus tame. So tame problem I define in the book as a problem where either of an algorithm or a mathematical computation will get you to a good answer. Uh, certainly data will get you closer to a good answer. Certainly an algorithm will get you closer. A wild problem is where data algorithms are not so helpful and in fact could lead you astray. And, you know, a big part of the book is that recognizing that as a human being, your ability to um, – consume data and analysis in an objective so-called rational way, highly limited. That's hard to recognize. You know, when you phrase it that way, I think of a dichotomy that I use a lot in 
I've been using this since the beginning of COVID. I've probably given 50 lectures on the topic on the difference between risk management and uncertainty. Yeah. Data is really good in risk management. It actually turns out to be really poor in uncertainty. Good, good point. Fantastic um, point. But, but most of these, what you call wild problems, are actually uncertainty problems. I don't know when I get married how it's going to impact my life exactly. I don't yeah. know when I have children how it's going to impact my being, my life, um, and where I thought my life trajectory was. Why did the economist Russ Roberts write this book about the inability to kind of use data to inform these problems. And when you get to the end of the book, I walked out with, by the way, I prefer, but I think a lot of people were probably scratching their head at the end of the book saying, okay, now what do I do? Yeah. Um, I love that. I had a rabbi who was deeply influential on me who said, I have more questions than answers. And that's the way I go through life. And that's the way I go through life too. But I think most people read books today, not to get to the end of the book and say, now what? Yeah. But you, so, that's the book you wrote. Yeah, it's the book I wrote. It's not a cookbook. It's not a guide. Like a man, It's not a manual. There's no self-help in there? No. Well, there yeah. is self-help, I, I would argue, but it's not the kind. Um, uh, so what's the seven-minute workout that's going to change my life? <laughs> so I don't give that workout. Um, I try to give people framework for thinking about their questions. Not to, I don't give the answers. Uh, that would be absurd and presumptuous. Um, but But I think the reason I wrote the book and I could give you, the, I could tell you a reason, but if I look a little deeper and try to think about, you know, what what was the actual process that got me to start thinking about these problems? I interviewed a lot of people on Econ Talk who I thought had thoughtful things to say about decision making, and I started to those started to marinate and cook in my head, and and that that was part of it. The other part is how I opened the book. A friend of mine comes to me and says, you know, my wife and I are thinking of having children. We made a list of the costs and benefits, and we just can't. They they're so close. We just can't make a decision. And I said, I don't think this is a cost-benefit decision. And I realized somewhere along the way that the moment we're in, which is a big data, power of data moment, and data is extraordinary. It can answer a lot of questions. But that means we need to be careful about where it can't answer questions. And I thought, I think there's something to say here as an economist about the limits of what I would call cost-benefit analysis, um, what in economics is called utility analysis, which is an optimization under constraints. Referred to that earlier. It's a great starting point often, and in these kind of decisions, I think it's the wrong way to think about it. Do you think, not just because of data or maybe because of data, young people today, young couples today, young 20-somethings today have a harder time making wild problem decisions? Yeah, at some point in the book. Because you talk about Darwin. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. A, well, a long time ago, yeah. Yeah, it's an old problem, but to some extent. But, you know, I think he's an unusual person. I, yes. I don't think we want to generalize from Darwin too much. Uh, I use Darwin as an example because he's one of the greatest scientists of all time, and yet he struggled with decision-making as, as his journal and diary reveal. And that's why I used him as an example. But somewhere in the book, somewhere early on, I'd make the point that a lot of the decisions that are that weigh heavily on young people today whether to marry, who to marry, whether to have children, how many children. These were not decisions a uh, hundred years ago. Uh, they weren't even barely decisions 50 years ago. You, you were going to get married. You got married. I think the average age of marriage in 1960 was something like 22 for men and 20 for women. It's now closer to in America. I think it's now 30 for men and 28 for women. That is a seismic change. That's not like oh, it's changed a little bit. No, it's a seismic cultural phenomenon. Um, the number of people who never marry or, or yet to marry is a sizable phenomenon. 
the uh, shrinking size of the American family and, and the Western family is a, outside of Israel is a incredibly important phenomenon. Um, so something has happened, right? And I, I think a lot of people are unmoored by it. They're not quite sure how to proceed. Um, 500 years ago, you didn't have a choice of your career. You either did what your parents did or you um, didn't have a job. I mean, there was no, you didn't like choose a career. So as modernity proceeds, things that used to be off the, char off the table are now on the table. I mean, obviously, you know, I didn't write about it in the book, but, you know, gender. Can you imagine 50 years ago telling people, hey, what, so what, uh, are you man or a woman? I'll be honest, <laughs> I have a hard time talking about, say, Bill Maher on a skit that, you know, now we debate biology. Yeah. So we're, we're in a very unusual cultural moment. Um, it's not a moment. It's, you know, it's an era that we're in. And part of the, you know, part of the reason I wrote the book was, was to give people help and thinking about these problems. And so, you know, when your kids are done with it, you tell them, tell them to write a note to my kids because maybe they'll read it if your kids tell them. Because no, if I tell them, they're not going to read no, it. No, no. My kids don't read my books. You know, I've written a bunch exactly. of books also. And they have a million reasons. <laughs> One of them, by the way, is my I've daughter heard. said to me on Saturday night, uh, I don't read your book because I feel like you're talking to me and I hear your voice for 250 pages. It's just too much. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard it a lot already. I've had, I've had plenty. Yeah, yeah. I get it. I got it. That makes me feel good, though. I'm glad I'm not the only one. So I'm an investor. You're an economist. We have to make wild problems decisions. What's better, an investor framework or an economist framework? And, or maybe none of them, valuable for any of these wild problem decisions. And by the way, for, for full disclosure, I have eight children. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'll be interested in your thoughts on this because I'm going to maybe turn the tables on you. I've interviewed and talk to a lot of successful people, obviously, in my, in my life, uh, a lot of them tell me that they make decisions using intuition. Uh, I'm not sure what that is. I recently interviewed Patrick House, uh, a neuroscientist on consciousness. He says something uh, incredibly profound. He said, um, he said, you don't make decisions with your gut. Your gut is used for digesting things that you uh, eat uh, but your intuition is something very different. Your intuition is a um, part of your brain if, back here, I forget the name of it, that doesn't forget anything. Um, now, you don't always have conscious access to that part of your brain, but it's sitting back there. And it's actually doing more than just storing stuff. It's actually analyzing. It's looking for cause and effect often because that's a very powerful and useful thing uh, evolutionary, evolution-wise. And uh, – it's processing data that you've absorbed and understanding that you've absorbed that you can't actually necessarily consciously identify. That doesn't mean it's irrational. It doesn't mean it's um, it's flipping a coin or just going quote going with your gut. It's actually uh, drawing on some some deep things. He tells an extraordinary story. The young, uh, I think he's a, a young person in the U.S. Army who's taking a senior person. Uh, across a very dangerous stretch of road um, in Iraq. I think it was Iraq. And he's going very fast because things happen on this road. And he's trying to get this bigwig to this important, to this next place. And in the middle of the trip, he suddenly slams on the brakes, does a U-turn and heads back to the home base. And the guy says, what are you doing? He says, I don't know. I just don't have a good feeling. Okay. And the guy said, fine. And they went back. Two hours later, he said, have you thought any more about why you turned around? He said, yeah. He said, um, you know, 
I, I'm guessing, he said, I don't know exactly why, but usually on that road, there's a lot of kids playing by the side of the road. And I think I realized I didn't hear him. I didn't see him. And it just, it scared me. Uh, it was different. So I just turned around. I said, rationally now thinking about it, you know, I probably was, you know, if the moms know there's something coming down, they probably don't let the kids play on the side of the road that day. So he goes, I'm just guessing, I, you know, I'm trying to recreate what happened in my head. So I have a feeling that some um, investment decisions, I'm sure after you've been an investor as long as you have, you certain you have a, a feel for, for what to do. Uh, I think economists, academic economists are really bad at decision-making because they're more likely to be paralyzed. They're more likely to have a bunch of pros and cons. They can't um, quantify them. So they're not sure what to do. Uh, and then they're just more likely to freeze, procrastinate. I write about this in the book. Look for more data. I just, you know, I need more yeah. information. I could, I, I want to make a good decision. So I need more information. That's really actually often going to not help you. You're just finding an excuse. Um, I saw a thing on Twitter this morning I found fascinating. So I want to get your reaction to all this, but I use this as the jumping off point. Uh, somebody said, I was about to make a deal. I was about to say yes and invest and with this CEO. And he was rude to the waitress. And I said, um, no, I'm not going to do it. To I've myself. had that before. And, you know, a lot of people would say, well, that's, that's irrational. Well, because he's a little bit rude. I mean, it's a great business concept. You're not going to invest it's cause, just because he was rude to a waitress. But I think for an investor who's seen human beings in all their shame and glory, it probably resonates with you. It, it's why I can't invest on Zoom. I couldn't invest over Zoom during the pandemic. I had to meet people and I spent time with them. Uh, and so I, I totally, that resonates with me. I've, I've often described intuition. I've been trying to formulate it better to put it into real copy, but it's intuition is rational to me and unexplainable to you. Yeah. Well, that's consistent with the story I just told. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's built up over time that I, I actually rationally, I'm making a rational decision. It may seem irrational to you, but it's totally rational. Uh, and, uh, I think that's kind of the core point. I want to ask you an economics question. So I have this thesis that values create value. Values create economic, uh, value. I had uh, Jeff Swartz, former CEO of Timberland on this, on the show, and he said that Timberland's values, which consumers associated with, turned uh, 4X on the landed price of a boot to 6X on the landed price of the boot. Everyone else got 4X because, you know, the values and you put the ingredients of the shoe on the box, turned it to 6X. How do you think about that comment? Do values, personal values, humanist values, religious values actually create economic value? Oh, for sure. And, and that's a luxury. What does that mean? Uh, through most of human history, we just tried to stay alive, right? right? Most human history, until the last three, four hundred years, were about subsistence for almost mm -hmm. all of human beings are, you know, typically agricultural community, mm -hmm. uh, struggling near the poverty line, struggling near to, to life or death. And the Industrial Revolution comes along, innovation technology come along, and suddenly living and dying is not what's at stake economically, but you can afford to consume other things. Um, the idea of paying 6X for a pair of boots um, because it makes you feel good about who you are or makes you feel part of a community or says something to the outside world about who you are in a way that is actually effective, right? That's not unimportant. 
but it's a luxury. It, it, it wouldn't be part of most of human 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 history. Um, Let me push back on that for a second because yeah. you wrote tithing is one of your values. Yeah, I mean tithing doesn't conform to the survival. I'm going to wait ten percent of my income to be a part of something or to support some guy over there. Like, why would I tithe then? I should keep everything to myself. I'm not sure how you want me to answer that, Michael. Answer that as an economist, as a human being. So let's. Start, I'll give you a couple answers to that. Uh, as you know, uh, in Judaism, you're obligated to give ten percent, but you're discouraged from giving more than twenty because ten is. Yeah, you can manage. 20, you put, might be putting yourself at risk. Um, but certainly there is a kind of economist who would say, and there's a kind of human being who would say, well, keep it all. I mean, why wouldn't you? You're a sucker. I mean, why would you give any of it away? I use the example in my book of the person who finds a wallet on the street and, and no one sees you. Should you keep it or not? And it's a true story. I, I tell the story in the book, but it's a true story. I'm teaching on Zoom a bunch of high school students. I'm doing a guest lecture for hundred-something AP students at a elite high school somewhere in America. And they said, economics tells you it's rational to keep the money, keep the wallet. I said, really? <laughs> it's like so sad. Economics doesn't tell you that. Economics tells you that you should do what is best for you. But what that could include, going back to our happiness machine conversation, you could be happy from knowing you did the right thing. You could be happy knowing that you made someone else happy. Uh, it, economics doesn't rule that out, but there is a type of viewpoint that says, look out for yourself, put yourself first. Uh, but I think that's a terrible way to live. And randism. Yeah. Um, I wonder, I, I've met generous people who subscribe to Ayn Rand, so I'm not, I don't know if that's a hundred percent fair. Maybe they're not, I don't know. She does talk about the virtuous selfishness. I read that book when I was 17, I think. So I, I don't remember the exact details, but um, there are, to be clear, uh, and to be a little bit of a contrarian, um, it's very hard to help people. And so charity is, is not, uh, a, a simple problem. Giving away money is not simple to be helpful. It's easy to give away the money. It's hard to be helpful. So, you know, I think, I think there's something to be learned from that challenge, but it's not, shouldn't be an excuse for not trying. And, um, it's an enormously, uh, I don't know. I just spent. I'm going to change gears here for a second. I I saw this on Twitter where a kid commits a crime. He goes to jail. His lawyer says, uh, "You're going to go to jail, but I'll do the best I can to keep it down, keep the sentence down." The kid goes to jail. He comes out. A few years later, he commits another crime. Worse. He's 25 now. The lawyer says, gets the same lawyer. The lawyer says, "You know, I, I got you out before a decent time." He said, this time you, you might spend life in prison. He said, um, but maybe it'll only be 10 years or so. But even if it's only 10 years, he says, look around. This is your house. This is where you're going to live for the next long while. You're a talented person. You have no excuse to not come out of here better. So make a plan now. Not a plan, but use your time here wisely. Become someone different. Don't get stuck in this narrative. And three days later or so, that lawyer died of a heart attack. And the criminal, the prisoner, because of that, kind of grabbed his attention <laughs> that he'd gotten this deathbed advice, effectively was a deathbed advice, and he changed his life. 
Okay, he used his time in prison differently. And um, I bring it up because there's different way, charity. There's different things we give away. We give away money, and we give away advice, and we give away time. And um, advice is hard to give well, right? A lot of times you give people advice that could ruin their life. Now, that was good advice, but you could have argued, you know, you give somebody that advice, and they think, who's he to talk to me that way? I'd be what I'm going to be what I want to be. And um, I just think it's incredibly hard to influence people for the better using anything, money, uh, time, and advice. And um, it's an unappreciated problem, actually. You know that in Yom Kippur, when you stand there and they do what's called in Hebrew the vidui or the uh, admitting your sins. So the 10th one is in Hebrew, Yatsnurai, gave bad advice. And we hit our hearts for giving bad advice. And I've thought about that like a lot because people come for advice, oh, I'm sure, to you all the time. I'm coming from Shalem College sure in a second. And probably a large percentage of the advice we give people is not good because um, you don't understand their circumstance, because they have circumstances you can't understand because Correct. your own framework is is so poor. And it's a really unresolved problem because people seek out advice. And so what do you do when somebody comes for you for financial advice, economic advice, wild problems advice? Do not do more damage. I, like I, Bang my heart, I probably did more damage this year than I did good when people came to me for advice. It's, it's daunting, by the way. It's like, oh, yeah. it's overwhelming. How many people did I damage through a bad piece of advice? Yeah. What do you do when someone comes to you for How do you handle that? So, you know, I wrote this book called Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions that Define Us. And I get unsolicited emails from readers who say, I have my own wild problem. What should I do? And I guess... That was an invitation when you wrote the book, I guess, on some level, right? I guess. But, you know, part of me wants to say, how would I know? Right? How, how, how can I answer your question? I don't know you. Um, on the other hand, but it's, I think, the challenge that, that you're referencing... We want to help other – someone calls out for help, you're going to say, oh, I can't help you out of any idea. That's a case where I don't know is – is might be the honest answer, but it's – not sure it's the best answer. So I do think when someone calls out, I think it's – you should you should answer. Um, I I like to think – I don't know if it's true. I like to think that if you, if you give it that advice with – care, kindness, and love. It actually has the potential to be helpful. Um, you know, as you know, we're told in the Bible not to put a stumbling block in front of the blind. And that's actually a statement about giving people advice that where you have a, a stake, you have skin in the game. Yeah. You have a, you have a stake in the, in the outcome and you're, you're told what the text is saying is you should not, you should recuse yourself. And, um, so when somebody who writes me out of the blue who I don't have a stake in it, you know, I um, I try to say something that's helpful. Now, I don't give it – again, I don't have an answer for them. I try not to answer their questions. I try to give them things that will help them answer their questions. I don't know if I can. That's what I try. I want to shift gears for a second. You just took up the presidency. It's now a year, I think, already, right? Year and a half. Year and a half of Shalem College, uh, which is a liberal arts college in Jerusalem. Uh I think it's fair to say that that's a contrarian move. I'm a liberal arts major myself, but the world has gone STEM. And, and the world has gone 
uh, away from very broad liberal arts education. This is an absolute contrarian move. We'll get to the Israel move in a second. But taking the presidency of Shalem College, a state of liberal arts college, says something about you. What are you trying to accomplish there? Why did you do this? And what does this say about the moment we're living in? Um, well, it's hard. Um, a lot there. I don't call Shalem a liberal arts college. It's a decent shorthand, but most people don't know what it means. They think liberal means politically on the left. We're not. We're, we have right. no ideology. Classics, think, Western literature, yeah. religious texts, exactly. Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Yep. Yeah. We, we read the great – some of the – it's not a great books program either, but for a year and a bit, our students delve deeply in small seminars into Plato, Aristotle, the Bible, the Quran, uh, Homer, Shakespeare, etc. And – I believe we are distinctive for two reasons. One is what we teach, which is what you're asking me about. We'll come back to that. But the second is how we teach it. I think that's equally, if not more important. Um, most college experiences in the world, not just in Israel, but certainly in Israel and, and elsewhere, you're lectured at. And a lecture is a cool thing. You can watch them on YouTube. There's a bunch. You, you can learn a ton from YouTube. Um, you can learn a ton of abstract knowledge, not just how to carve a turkey, which is really useful. And, <laughs> and I'm sure there's a dozen useful turkey carving videos on YouTube. Don't forget sourdough bread. There you go. Uh, my wife has profited greatly, as, her, <laughs> as has her family, in the non-financial sense from the sourdough bread videos. Um, so one thing that is powerful about being a human being is absorbing knowledge, information would be a better way to say it. And college has increasingly become a place where you acquire knowledge, which is nonsensical given that knowledge is free in all kinds of ways on YouTube and Google and, and everywhere else. That's not what we should be doing. What we should be doing is giving people the tools to transform themselves, which is what we try to do at Shalem in hopes that they'll transform their country uh, once they become more thoughtful, once they learn how to listen, once they learn how to speak respectfully to people who not, might not necessarily agree with them. Um, how to ask good questions. These are the things that are the basis for a great society, and Israel needs them desperately. So when I was offered the chance to come here to be part of that, even though I did not have a Zionist dream, I liked Israel. I'd come here often. Uh, I couldn't say no. It just was – it just seemed like the thing – as long as my wife was willing to come with me, <laughs> it just seemed like something I had to do. And um, so that's what that's about. I don't – STEM is great. Um, I'm a big fan of STEM. I have children in STEM. I have children in in art. I have children in education. I have a son in rabbinical school. I, and I, I I like the whole pack. I like the whole spectrum of 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 human creativity and and the quest for understanding and knowledge. But STEM without thoughtfulness is dangerous. <laughs> it's just it's kind of it's kind of obvious. I I don't. Um, so that's and, a great, yeah, sorry. I mean, it's a great country. I mean, I've been here a year and a half. This is an amazing place. Uh, but I can't, you know, a lot of people in America and, and here, I think, who are trained in STEM, who've never taken a course in philosophy, who've never read a novel, who've never had to write a, uh, an essay on, on the implications of, of a novel for, for real life, are thirsty for it. And so, you know, we don't draw students who are interested in the liberal arts. We draw people who are in, in, at Shalem. We draw people who are interested in ideas, books, and questions that often don't have an answer. 
And I think every thinking person, that's appealing. Now, some people are so gifted in, in say, biochemistry or physics or computer science that they should focus on those things. But most people can't focus on those things. They have other skills and gifts. And so we're trying to create those in a way that will help this country have leadership in lots of different ways. So I really want to dig down here because you made the case now that tech people need to have shorthand liberal arts education, know the classics, et cetera. What is the value? If you had to pitch the value, the economic value, but also the societal value for tech people, for people in high tech, in innovation, to have a liberal arts education, shorthand again for the great texts and hard problems, et cetera, what is it? So I think there's a couple things there that you asked the question, an interesting way, you said the economic value. It fascinates me. A lot of people think the education we give at Shalem isn't practical. It's incredibly practical to be able to think deeply and ask good questions, and our students are beloved by their employers. Uh, it's Our students are different, and the skills they acquire, I call them superpowers. Um, so it is practical, but you don't have a barcode on your forehead when you come out of Shalem that says accountant or computer scientist or chemist. So it's a little scary. Um, but I think it's incredibly important, and it certainly is economically valuable in the sense that our students thrive materially, if they, as materially as they want. Yep. You know, they can go into high tech. They're, they're valued there. But why is it important? Why is it important? Because why, I yeah. think, well, as one, as one I have a, we have a grad who's uh, – we've only been around for 10 years, so we have a limited alumni base. But we have a grad who's uh, he's manager in a, at a high level in a startup. And I said, has Shalem been helpful to you? He said – well, yeah, because I had to learn – it's a cancer. They're fighting cancer. He said, I had to teach myself biology and physics, so I could do that because I'd gone to Shalem. No book scares me. Um, and he said, I work with marketing people, doctors, engineers, and scientists, and I have to create a narrative they can all fit in and be part of. I couldn't have done that without Shalem. So I think that's why it's practical on a personal level. But I think it's practical on a national level. The reason – I mean, it's a nice college. It's a great place to go to, to get an education. I think a lot of people, um, when I tell them about it in America, say, I wish I could study there. You know, They don't speak Hebrew and they're too old, but uh, to get a degree anyway, they could come study. But um, I think it's important for this country uh, or else I wouldn't be doing it. And I make the joke in my book, if it was in Hungary or um, you know Peru, I wouldn't have gone. Uh, but I care about Israel and I think – Israel desperately needs leadership that is thoughtful, that can talk to different people respectfully. Here's an amazing thing. I don't know if you know this, Michael, but there's a there's a judicial reform on the table here in Israel. Yeah, it's hard to miss it, right? What? Hard to miss it, right? Now, yeah, it's right, kind right, of yeah. hard to miss it. It's kind of like on the front page of the paper every single day, is this going to destroy the country forever or save it? Uh, and um, last week at lunch, there were 25 students at Shalom sitting around on the ground, totally un informally. And having a conversation about whether this is a good idea or not. And there are people on the left and there are people on the right and nobody was yelling. So that's a win for me. That, that's the future of the country I want to live in. I think probably you want to live in. <laughs> you know, I often talk to candidates who are joining Israeli companies in executive management positions. I said, what's the one thing I need to know culturally? I said, well, in America, if somebody's yelling at you, it means – you know, it's really bad. But in Israel, if they're not yelling at you, that's when you really need to be worried because it means they don't care. 
So there's something cultural about yelling here yeah, that's uh, true. as well. How's the movement? I mean, you moved here. You took this yeah. role. You want to help the country. You want to create a great society. Yeah. Uh, around that's it. small G, small S, by the way. Not, not, nothing really to Lyndon Johnson in the 60s in America. Fair. <laughs> uh, what surprised you most about the move? Um, Other than you have this great thing, by the way, about uh, how how dinner tables are seated for longer. You know what? Why don't you tell that? That's the first surprise, and then you tell me what else surprised. Yeah. So when I you know when I when I came here, Israel doesn't have the best reputation for service in, in the restaurant business or elsewhere. And when I got here, I was an obnoxious American, and I thought, yeah, the service is terrible. You know, you sit down, they bring you the food, and then they never come back. It's terrible. They don't ask you how you're doing. They don't bring you water. They don't ask you anything else. They don't. And then time to pay, they disappear. You can't find them to pay the check. It's this, it's horrible. And then I talked to some Israelis. They come to America and they say, like, it's horrible. The waitresses, waiters all over you. Hey, can I get anything else? Have a nice day. How's it going? How's the chicken? I'm trying to have a conversation with my friend and you're interrupting me and pouring my water and leave me alone. And in Israel, what happens by they don't usually don't refresh your water. It's weird to an American. They put it picture on the table and they say help yourself it's like oh great i gotta fill my own water here yeah you do <laughs> but i've come to love it and i've come to understand it and the reason it works the way it does and it also means by the way that i was trying to explain why the markup here is a little bit higher perhaps than people are used to elsewhere uh in other cultures but in this culture which is a middle eastern culture which is probably true in lots of places near and far from here but that have this culture people come to eat not to eat the food. They come to have an experience with their friend. They're going to talk for a long time. And they don't want to be interrupted. And it's great once you embrace that and understand the cause. It's wonderful. Great thing happened last night. Perfect example. We're having dinner. The waitress uh, comes over toward the end and asks. She's clearing. And she. And a lot of times, by the way, they don't clear here either, which is also a jarring to an American. Just sits there for a while because you're talking. They don't want to interrupt you. Anyway, she clears and she says, do you guys want dessert? And, you know, we looked at the menu and we decided no. She said, do you want anything else? I said, no. She said, okay. She said, let me know when you want the check and walked away. So we're done. We're not getting dessert. We're not having coffee. We're, we're done in America. You're now an expense. Exactly. I'm taking up a table that could turn over. That's why the markups higher here. It's because the table doesn't turn over as often if you eat for two and a half hours. So she didn't say, oh, you're done. Well, here's your check. No. She just said, yeah, when you're ready, just let me know. And it's just, it's an amazing thing. So that cultural, that's just one small example. The, um, you know, I tell my wife all the time, we're living in the Middle East. You know, we think because it's a Jewish country and we know more or less and we know what it's like to be Jewish. And we know lots of Jews that we know what it's like to live in Israel. It's not true. Israel's different. And, um, I'd say the single most important thing, and um, I find it almost endlessly fascinating as an economist, negotiation and material transactions, financial transactions, are a combination of theater and connection. In America, it's a transaction. Get it over with. Get it done. There's a posted price. You're done. Out. And it's great, by the way. There's a lot of advantages to that. It's not true here. Always. Sometimes it's true. There's some places where it's true. You go to the grocery most times as opposed to price, you, they rig it up and you pay. But any kind of renovation, any kind of handyman, uh, any kind of purchase in, in the shook, 
in a place where in the market in the market. Even the tax authority here is a negotiation. Oh, <laughs> don't tell me. <laughs> Maybe not for you, but yeah. it's you do. You know, you, you need. The rules are sometimes enforced relentlessly and sometimes ignored. By the way, I hear you tell the story, and I think you could never have written the book Wild Problems unless you moved to Israel, because <laughs> yeah. there are so many more of those here where this data can't help you. Yeah, I've gotten, um, like many many difficult things after a while, those things recede into the distance. Uh, they, they pass. Um, it does help you appreciate what it's like to move to a foreign country in a way you can't before you do it. It's an amazing thing. If you weren't an economist, what would you be? I'll tell you what I'd want to be. Yeah. I'd want to be a novelist. I wrote three novels. They're not very good novels. They teach economic principles. Uh, but I'd love I wish I wish I'd been a novelist. I'd like to write musicals. I wish I had some musical talent. You did. You wrote you wrote rap <laughs> yeah, videos. I wrote some rap videos. You, yeah. You know, some, <laughs> why'd you do the rap videos? Like what caused you to make the rap videos? So that was a filmmaker approached me, liked my podcast. Um, this is in two thousand and eight, and he said, uh, we should do something together. And I I said, that's nice. <laughs> I said, yeah, great. What do you want? You know, I, I, I would get these occasionally. Someone would do a project. I said, most of these never come to anything. I don't have time to do it. He said, if you'll, I said, if you'll do the work to get us started, I'll, uh, yeah, maybe. Let's get started. So we tried. And um, we came up for an idea for a sitcom where Hayek and Keynes would be roommates. And Hayek would be always worried about money and Keynes would want to spend it all the time. <laughs> so that was, we got that far. And I said, you know, we, we had a good time. It was fun talking to him. His name was John Popola, an amazing person, great filmer, great filmmaker, and now a good friend. But at the time, we're just, we're just fooling around, having fun. And I said, you know, we talked a lot about this. It's time to really either do something or not. So I said, I said why don't we create the, um, the theme song for the sitcom? And I had in mind, and this dates me horribly, the Mary Tyler Moore show. The Mary Tyler Moore show... Those I watched the reruns when I you, was a kid. So. And, and you can see them now online. Is that right? Yeah. And that that um, theme song is catchy, and it ends with a wonderful moment where Mary throws her hat in the air, her beret or whatever it is, and uh, it's it's full of possibility. And I thought, if we could just write something, a three-minute song, four-minute song, capture that kind of emotional resonance, and it could be funny. And so we started writing a song, and that's the next thing you know. Let's make it a rap song because people, young people like that. And we should make this of interest to young people. And We're going to actually play the, the chorus from one of those songs. Going back and forth for a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. Play low interest rates. It's the animal spirits. John Maynard Keynes wrote the book on modern macro. The man you need when the economy's off track. You've got the beat. I'm totally toned up, you know that? I have a cameo in one of them. <laughs> I watched. I had to prep for the show. I don't watch. I can tell you one funny thing about that. May I? Please. When they came out, a journalist told me, he said, <laughs> he said, uh, I now know your epitaph. I said, what? He said, it's going to say he wrote the Keynes and Hayek rap videos. <laughs> I thought, that's my app. I mean, it was the most appalling thought I had ever heard. and But over the years, I've kind of come to embrace it. There are worse things for an epitaph. Um, I hope there are other things on the stone, but uh, those videos are fun, and people learn something from them. I have to ask the question because we're kind of on the topic after the lyrics there. 
inflation today, printing money, anything else? I was trained at the University of Chicago. Um, Milton Friedman said inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. I don't think it can be otherwise. And yet there are times when that connection is a little bit uh, veiled. So, but I do think that's the problem. Or exacerbated, right? Yeah, it can, it can, be, like it can be, it can be leveraged into much bigger things or smaller things, or it may take a while, there may be a lag. But if you print money and it gets, and I add this is important, and it gets into the economy because there were periods of time where we've printed money and it sat on the books of banks that I think did not stimulate inflation. Um, I don't think it's a lot more complicated than that other than to point out that in our particular case now sitting in Israel, we're a small country in a very large world and things can affect us besides our own monetary policy. So that has to be taken into account. Actually, that's part of the question I want to ask, which is not just Israel, but like the U.S. has stopped printing as much money, at least right now, and you know, it's quantitative tightening. And But in Japan, they're still printing a lot of money. And we live in a global world. And Correct. so is it kind of false to think that we can control inflation on a national level when you've got all of these kind of economic phenomenon going on in other countries and less borders to economic trade and, and money, you know, and Japanese buying American bonds? And you get the point. And I don't know if my graduate school roommate is listening to this conversation, but we took a course together on this. He was better at it than I was. So I asked for his help, and I got an A, and he didn't. So usually when I ask him these kind of questions, you just ask me because I know he's smarter than I am and understands it better. He just looks at me and gives me the sign language for A, which is a fist like this, and says, you know, like, you got the A. You should be able to answer it. But the truth is I don't fully understand it. It obviously is related to not just the monetary policy of a domestic country, but also the uh, openness of that country to foreign capital flowing in and out, also to whether exchange rates are floating or fixed. So it's a very complicated problem in any one country's situation. You'd have to take into account those things. And I've forgotten most of that, even though I did get the A. Um, what was his name? I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Um, How am I going to target him on Twitter and make sure he <laughs> listens to the episode? I'll send it to him. He'll, All get, a right. kick. He'll get a kick out of it. <laughs> it it's a longstanding source of amusement and irksomeness for him. Um, so, but to take, take your question a little more seriously, you know, I think we do live in a global world and I think if we've learned anything from the European Union, it's that it's very difficult to have independent control over your own fiscal and monetary policy and still be part of a larger group. Um, in the case of the United States, Texas doesn't have a monetary policy. Its fiscal policy matters a little bit, obviously, for its own citizens, but um, they're part of the United States. They're all using the dollar, so it, it kind of um, therefore limits what any one member can do. And if Israel is open to the world and Japan is open to the world, uh, there are constraints on monetary policy because of because of that. I have to ask you a question. You just raised it. Does the EU last? That's so. It's such an interesting question. You know, when it was started, Milton Friedman wisely said, I think this is not going to last because of this challenge I just talked about. Countries want their own control over their uh, over their monetary policy, and, the, and it's an illusion to think they can do so under the current situation. Of course, the current situation, the, the way the EU is constructed, is um, loose. You know, there's, they don't enforce 
the rules necessarily that they expect you know, countries to enforce on, say, balanced budgets and other things. In we 50 years, we- is there an EU? What? In 50 years, is there an EU? Boy, I doubt it, don't you? Yeah. It's too, too, yeah. Nothing lasts 50 years. Most things don't last 50 years. Yeah. I, I, I put the demarcation line in 20. Let me ask you a different question. Do you think in the next 50 years there'll be a, a serious uh, military confrontation between current members of the EU? Think Germany will ever go to war with France again or something like it? It's a good question. I think there'll be a serious military confrontation in Europe. Anybody so, who remembers it will be dead by that point. Yeah. And so That's, deterrence yeah. is down. Yeah. Great insight. Yeah. And the demographics of Europe have changed vastly and are shrinking and dying. And so I expect Europe in 30 years already not to be Europe um, the way we've known it. Probably since the mid to late Middle Ages when the Muslims invaded uh, Europe at the time, Spain in particular. And so... I don't expect the Europe that we know today to be the Europe we know in 30 years, if I'm around to see it. Yeah, we'll see. I'd, we'll still have beautiful buildings, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, places you go to visit. So uh, I need to ask you a few more rapid questions. How do you choose who to interview? It's such a wide variety of guests. This, if you haven't listened to Econ Talker, it's fabulous. I have a favorite episode, but I'd love to know how, who you choose that interview and what's your favorite episode. So when I started in 2006, people said, well, this won't last very long because you won't, you'll run out of guests. I mean, how could you, how many interesting economists are there? And somewhere in the early days, I realized I could interview some economists more than once. So I've interviewed Mike Munger, you know, 30 plus times. I totally forgot. I might be 40 now, a lot. He's, he's, he's roughly twice a year. Um, I realized Should I be that, insulted I didn't get a second invitation back? I'm just, it's young. All right, okay. we, the day is young. Life, <laughs> who knows? You may get a second invitation. You play your cards right, Michael. Actually, the truth is you just have to write another interesting book. I know you have, so there's, there's hope for you. Um, so I realized, one, some economists have more than one thing to say, so you can interview them more than once. But the second thing is I got interested in other things. So, you know, for the last seven or so years, econ talk is much less about economics. It's about other things, things that I think are more interesting to me, interesting to the world. I still interview economists. Uh, we're doing our uh, current survey of favorite episodes of 2022. And uh, there'll be some economists in the top 10 uh, that I interviewed. But there'll also be some crazy episodes I did with, I mean, I interview poets and I interview filmmakers and I interview business people and I interview people, philosophers, um, I interview people I think I learned something from or I learned something from their from their essay or book. I don't interview people. I pretty much interview people who've written things I find interesting. So that's how I pick them. I find something that intrigues me. I think it'd be fun to go deeper or I think it's something my listeners would enjoy hearing. And that's that's how I pick my guests. You write in the book uh, that parenting is a unique, unique human experience. I think you said this on Tim Ferriss's podcast as, as well and that you recommend it. I'm on the record, as I think everyone should have kids. Uh, candidly, the more the merrier, in my view. Um, and I think it makes you a better person. And so how do you think about the kind of modern tendency to think really hard before having kids, not to have kids, uh, 
limiting family size. It's almost become like a, you know, a, a sign of being noble not to have kids in some places. For sure. Um, and what would you tell young couples as they're getting ready to build a family or thinking about it? Well, child, having a child's not for everybody. Um, it comes with great costs. And people, I think, tend to think of those costs as financial and can't go on as good a vacation as you might like or you can't have the car that you want. Those are not the costs of parenting, <laughs> not the most important costs. The most important costs are um, tying yourself to people you can't after a while control and and uh, the emotional – that journey is so profound. As you said, it, it – teaches you things, it changes you. Uh, I write the book, it teaches you to um, understand your parents. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing gift, uh, that part of it. But I, I don't, I'm not a big as, and I don't think I'm as big an advocate for, for parenting as you are. I just think it's underappreciated. So, so the reason, part of the reason I quote advocate for it to the extent I do in the book is that I think the case against it is so obvious. Everyone knows the case against it. They also know the case against marriage. Uh, it cramps your style, you know, it's parenting and marriage. You, you, it limits your freedom and it limits it in profound ways. And for a lot of people, I think looking at it from the outside, it's like, why would I do that to myself? Why would I limit myself in that way? Why would I limit what I can do, who I can be? And part of the reason I wrote this book was to um, help people – Maybe imagine what's the upside. Uh, the downside is very clear. Uh, I, you know, I write in the book that you know Darwin, when he's trying to st struggle in his journal over whether to get married or not, he makes this pro-con list, and he has no idea what the what the pros are. <laughs> the cons are pretty obvious. He, you know, his his wife might not want to live in London. Uh, her relatives might annoy him, and he's not going to be able to do great science anymore. You might have kids who are going to die and it's going to be sad. And why put yourself through that? And so my claim is, is that as a, as a single person in, in the 19th century, but not much different today, the benefits of marriage, of tying yourself to a single person for decades, and that's what I would argue is interesting about marriage, not a formal ceremony, but make a commitment to someone for a long time. The upside of that is unseeable unknown it's veiled from you and um you have to experience it to to appreciate it and so i'm trying to i mean your mileage may vary so i don't want to tell every listener you got to get married you got to have kids it's the greatest it's challenging yeah it's i find really interesting hard. i find interesting the words you use freedom ties me down etc towards the end of my book the tree of life and prosperity on an entirely different topic i quote andy warhol uh, who says that, I think it's Warhol, who says that constraints drive the greatest creativity. Um, I'd argue that the constraints of marriage and parenting actually drive the greatest human initiative, creativity, and not just that, but long-term thinking, which particularly in economics or in Buffettisms, long-term greedy or longer-term greedy is super valuable because you think in terms of generations, uh, my grandmother just passed away three weeks ago. She left hundreds of descendants and she lived forever, basically, and thought forever uh, because of that. And I think uh, economically, societally, and I even say creatively, 
but to use a rational argument, we'd be better uh, off. And it's not, we have this notion that being a free bird is actually positive for our development. And I'll argue that it's actually not necessarily positive for the development. I was reading uh, Michael Wishagrod over Shabbat, his book, The Body of Faith, which is uh, for me the single greatest book that is least appreciated. Oh, it's a unbelievably thought-provoking book. And one of the things he says in there is that it's really not that much about immortality in the Chumash, in the five books of Moses. The closest thing we get to immortality is God telling Abraham the promise that his ancestors will, I mean, his children and offspring will uh, be numerous, will be um, a great nation that you'll help me out. What else does he promise them? We like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the... That's uh, the numerous part, but there's something else he says see. in there, something else important. That I know that he will command his children in the pathways of righteousness and justice. I can't remember. What are you looking for? I'm, I can't remember. It doesn't I, matter. I can help you with the verses if you frame it. It's, I, it doesn't matter. Right. But, but God makes a promise to Abraham. And Wishagrod makes the observation, and this is radical, but we don't appreciate it because it's a long time ago, is that nobody thought about the future. They thought about the past. You, know, you knew who your parents were. You knew who your grandparents were, baby. You might appreciate that you are the descendant of someone, but the idea that you would have descendants and that they might represent you in the world and carry on a legacy is a radical idea. It was a new idea. And uh, I do think you're right. I do think um, having children that causes you to look to the future, uh, it's not unimportant. It's quite important, and I think um, politics in a world where many people don't have children is very different than politics in a world where people are parts of families. Four rapid-fire questions to finish. Yeah. Is there economic growth without demographic growth? Sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Technology, so, innovation, yeah. Okay. That leads me to the second question, which is you mentioned before AI. Uh, you want to be in this, this conversation, not, not in an AI conversation. When you think about how artificial intelligence is going to impact productivity, not jobs, but productivity, where do you think that puts us in a decade or two? Well, it's kind of young uh, in its current format. If you think about chat GPT, um, a lot of people, it's amazing how, I get a Twitter thread a day yeah. from someone saying, this is how you use it, by the way, follow me, <laughs> banner going into the future. By the way, why do you use Twitter? Say again? Why do you use Twitter? Why do I use it? Yeah, you're like prolific on Twitter. That's your... Yeah, I, mean, I spend a lot of time on it. I, looking at it, I, don't, I wish I were more prolific. I don't have time anymore, but um, I learn a lot. I get exposed to interesting things, interesting ideas, articles. Uh, that's what I read it for. I think people get different things out of it. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I cut you off on AI and yeah, so, productivity. So um, ChatGPT, which is embryonic in its form, and, and I think... I think it's going to be phenomenal. I think it's going to make us a lot more productive. It's going to save us a ton of time. Um, and it's just the first tiniest step in a user-friendly tool that can make life better. Step function change of productivity? I don't know. It feels that way. I, I don't know. It's too early to tell. I think we'll know. And I mean, is it just going to get a little bit better and better and better? Or is it going to be like right now it's, it's pretty mediocre, Yeah, but it's cool. It I mean, it's really cool. It pushes me on creativity because yeah. you got to do better than the chapa. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So in a hundred years, when they write the biography of Russ Roberts, what's the title going to be? So it can't be kind of Keynes and Hayek. It's got to be something <laughs> better than that. 
you know, my dad's, um, my dad's tombstones. My dad told me what he went on his tombstone 25 years before he died. And it was, um, his heart was full of stories. I wouldn't mind that being on my tombstone. I don't know. It's not a very good title for for an autobiography, but, but I think what I increase coming back to what we talked about before, what I'm increasingly interested in is um, conversation and stories. I think it's as human beings how we are wired to learn, how we're wired to connect to each other. Um, you want to be remembered as a storyteller or yeah, something else? No, that'd be good. I'd love to be remembered as a storyteller. Well, I think you're an amazing storyteller. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. This Thank was you. so fun. Was so much fun. Yeah, it was a blast. And uh, I just want to add one thing in in closing. The first time I met you at a coffee shop yeah. uh, in, in, in Jerusalem, I kind of came to the meeting hesitantly. Everyone told me uh, that uh, you're, you're this very nice guy, but very brilliant and <laughs> very brilliant conversation. And I was intimidated. No, I, don't, I have no education. <laughs> and uh, so I, came, I came out of the meeting... And I came home and, and, and I, I told my wife, because we were in Jerusalem that day, I didn't go to the office. I just met this fascinating, interesting guy who at 65 decided to come and move to Israel to help build a country. And that that inspires me to think that we all have got years to go to keep building a better country. And so thank you for that inspiration. Wow. Touches me. It, Thanks, man. It's really amazing. And you can find everything Russ Roberts at his website, at russroberts.info, and on Twitter, at econtalker. That's spelled E-C-O-N-T-A-L-K-E-R. At the end, I'd like to say, if you enjoyed this podcast with Russ, I will invite him back. Please rate us five stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also go listen to Econ Talker. It's amazing. And buy the book, Wild Problems. You will not regret it. I literally went read it in one Sabbath. One sitting in one Sabbath. So thank, thank you, you, Russ. It's short. Yeah, it is. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.